So this morning, we continue on one of the more important sections here that help us define the church biblically, the leadership of the church, the message of the church, the duties of the church, and the fact that I have to say throughout what we call church history, almost most of the time, almost exclusively, the church for well, well over a thousand years, almost 2,000, has been misdefined since the death of the apostles. And so if we're going to have a biblically defined idea about the church, the only way we'll ever get that is from Scripture alone. And it's pretty obvious that what people think is church is not. I, uh, as I've mentioned, I'm not very good at sleeping. Uh, if I sleep till 3.30, that's a good night. So I, so I turned on, and did you see this uh, coronation thing? Well, I happened to be up, and it was going on. And it just epitomized to me, take nothing against, I'm nothing against the Brits and their traditions, but in regard to the church, to see the the architecture the the few little people here on each side and all this other stuff what disappears in all this um, trying to create the kingdom on earth now or make it look like the kingdom is the people who actually believe they're nothing they don't even get on the radar you got gold and you've got pomp and you've got all this glorious stuff as if the king was here on earth. Um, and in fact, the people who actually are believers have no standing whatsoever. They're nothing. Now, I'm not saying everybody thinks that way, but that's what it ends up being. Nothing to me personally is more loathsome than high church. High church, in my opinion, is Antichrist church. Let's build a tower of Babel and have our spire to heaven. And so that's my commentary on what I saw when I woke up at 3.30. Now, I know people find it romantic. I think that's the big appeal is romanticism, uh, the, the romantic ideal. But, dear ones, the church consists of people who are blood-bought, sons and daughters of the true king who reigns in heaven and they're not here to draw attention to themselves we're not here to claim that we are the great powers in the world and everybody ought to look to us we're not here to assert our own status as being superior to everyone else and it's not at all wrong to call ourselves sinners saved by grace because that's exactly how we enter the kingdom as we're saved by grace so to that end let's I, I just I couldn't help but say something about it because I couldn't watch anything else that's all I had on at 3.30 but that was an amazing bunch of pomp and circumstance but it certainly if you could find the gospel in there it may have got mentioned somewhere the other thing acoustics why would you build a building that's guaranteed nobody will be able to hear the gospel unless they have the finest sound technicians anywhere to try to get it audible in an echo chamber? So right there shows the message is the least thing that's important. Echo chamber does not help get a message. So the word preached and heard and understood and believed is how God saves people. Impressing people with our own importance is not, not important. All right. Let's go to the next slide here. We, this is a review from a couple of weeks ago. What we're dealing with is the church, the elders, and the dangers that attend 
all churches, uh, all the way back to the time of the apostles, and that is, in this case, wolves. Acts 20, 29. It says here, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And we covered a lot of this last time, and I think I covered the many places in the New Testament where sheep are mentioned, and Jesus in John 10 talks about his sheep. We see it in Peter, and we see this here. So it's a shepherd imagery. And um, the point of the shepherds, which are the same people, the overseers, the elders, the ones who shepherd a flock, the same people. And their concern has to be for the sheep. And their concern for the sheep cannot be determined by what they think the sheep have to offer them. And you see that in the parables, you see it in the Gospels. Who has something to offer? And then that gets the typical leadership motivated. And that may be status or maybe money or maybe whatever. But the Lord himself cares about everyone, including and especially those who in our eyes have nothing to offer us. But we're wrong even in that assessment because every member of the body of Christ is there by Christ's doing and are important. And we're not even able to correctly assess that because we tend to see the visible and the important and not necessarily the people serving, praying, caring, loving, and behind the scenes or not prominent in, in people's eyes. So I mentioned beware, I think, a couple weeks ago when I last taught as a review, Luke 20, 46 and 47. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. Anybody see any of those on the news? <laughs> Love respectful greetings in the marketplaces, chief seats in the synagogues, places of honor at the banquets, and devour widows' houses, and for an appearance's sake, offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation, Luke 20, 47. Remember Luke Acts, two-volume work, single author, Luke. Now, if you offer a long prayer for appearance sake, to whom are you praying? Yourself. Yourself, yeah. What, is there a parable about that in man's Self, thou has many goods laid up. Uh, so, but God be merciful to me, a sinner, is a valid prayer. And the Lord help me when you're so beat up and weak that you can't even think strongly enough to give a two-sentence cogent prayer and all that you can possibly utter is, Lord Jesus, help me. I've been there. That, that took everything to even say that. And I've met people in that condition. I can understand it. It would be horrible to despise someone at their worst moment because they're not eloquent, articulate, or looking like they have something going for them. How, does that, how do we have an understanding of this? By scripture, by truly understanding the author's meaning and understanding what God said, and then by observing when the opposite happens, how harmful it is to different people. So guarding against the wolves, the wolves we know can come in sheep's clothing. They come sometimes with a cloak of piety, claiming to have something that we don't or something to offer, but we need to beware. Galatians 
2, 4 through 5 I have listed here. Let me read that. <clears throat> he said, but it was because of false brethren secretly brought in who sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. The context was Judaizers. Woes pose a mortal threat to the church. And teaching is generally where it comes in. There could be libertines, there could be legalists, but it's never centered on the gospel of the grace of God. Um, feel free to comment. Let me cite Dr. Schnabel, whose commentary has been so helpful to me. Paul predicts that dangerous people, people whose behavior is bad, treacherous, impious, will come into the congregation, presumably from other churches, who will not spare the believers. The metaphor of the wolves shows in the context of the description of the elders as overseers and shepherds, verse 28, that the air is not a minor evil, but represents a mortal threat to, to the community, which has to be averted, unquote. There I see uh, through many decades how easily deceived people are by someone coming in with something that sounds pious or um, claiming to have some new thing that ordinary Christians don't know or didn't notice or missed, and so on. So there's so many illustrations. We have to deal with them when they come up. I can't tell you how many we've run into. We get them by email now where people are asking about things. And so we just keep... We have to really, to, to correct error and to point to the truth... One has to be patient and stay that way your whole life because it always is going to need to be done. Always people are being hurt. Always they're being misled. It never goes away. And Paul, the means of Pax Romana, Rome at this time, had a lot of communication compared to most of history up to that point and later. But now we have even more because it comes in through you know, phones and um, every way, way you can imagine. So the need for discernment is very uh, uh, prevalent. We need discernment. So uh, let me also, um, let me, any comments on this? I think I covered some of this before. External wolves come from the outside. Yes. By the way, I got that fixed. It wasn't working last week. In this instance, Aren't we talking mainly about people that would come in and, and talk about, uh, well, you got to follow the law, you got to be circumcised, and so on and so forth. But today, we see people who want to be, you know, the bind goes back to the binding and loosening. We want to make this law upon you. You have to do this. You can't do that. And, and that's where the divide is. Yeah. It's, it ends up being both binding and loosing for those of you who are new to hearing that terminology in this context means forbidding or permitting what is a valid Christian liberty and what is something that's restricted that we're not supposed to do as binding and loosing. <clears throat> the errors that you read about in the New Testament cover both. There's the licentious heir promising them liberty while they themselves are subject to slavery. And the legalistic heir making laws that God never gave. And there's other versions of heir, by the way. If you look at Colossae, the Colossian heresy, you had the visionary heirs. In other words, liberties to... Um, go into the visionary realm and have experiences beyond those that ordinary Christians have 
And there's this word in the Greek, embatuon, having entered. They have a higher vision and a better understanding. We were just doing that on podcasts a week ago. Turned out okay, Jessica said. And the one quote, quote out of that episode that I think is relevant to what you're talking about right now is you called it sophisticated unbelief. There's this whole system you have to learn for their version of unbelief. Well, every once in a while I have a turn of the phrase I didn't even know I did. <laughs> Jessica does all the editing and then she pulls out things that... If, if, and it is, it's sophisticated unbelief. Well, let me explain. Uh, I remember now what we were talking about. What were we talking about, the visionary realm? Yeah. Um, that came up in John. I preached on John last Sunday. Isn't there one? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who descended. So there's an exclusion and an exclusive claim for Christ, the one who created the universe, whose home, as God the Son, is heaven. He comes and explains what we know. The people who claim to go to heaven and learn, and literally, they say they went into the third heaven, come back to tell us things are false. And so I thought about that John passage. I think it's applicable. Colossians says taking their stands on visions they've seen. I get emails from a guy who claims that he can teach you how to visit some different levels of heaven and claim to be talking to angels and so on. That's another version of wolves. They're everywhere. I uh, really I call it sophisticated unbelief because if you believe, you trust what Christ says about these things through his apostles. If you have unbelief, you've got to visit heaven first before you believe it. But you can't even believe that because when Paul, what we were doing was going through 2 Corinthians 12. Is that right? Uh, well, we hadn't got there yet. No, we haven't got there yet. Colossians okay. 2.18. Yeah, okay. Colossians 2.18. So the point is, there, I can't tell you what all the errors are going to be, but I'll tell you the, the simple way to avoid them. Authority of Scripture, priesthood of every believer, the simplicity of the gospel, and the sufficiency of Christ. And we've got to get it right. We can't mess around with the doctrine of Christ, who he is, what he did, why we need him. And if the gospel is confessed, and confession is important, Somebody emailed me and said, well, I go to a church and they have this right and they have that right, but something's missing. And so then I analyzed it. I said, what about confession? Is there confession of Christ? So we noticed that some people will say they check the boxes on the doctrine, but give them a pulpit and a lot of people, they won't confess Christ ever or call for faith and repentance and turning to Christ because it's simply mental assent to what somebody believed a hundred years ago so confession is important so the wolves come they're everywhere and I'm not here to, to make you just be afraid I'm here to share this to show what the answer is let's have a little preview of where we're going with this probably get there next week, but I can't even guarantee that. What does Paul say at the end here? Now I commend you to God in the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance amongst those who are sanctified. So God in the word of his grace is never going to go away. Yes, brother. Yeah, I, uh, Eric. as we're talking about the wolves, I, I think about Jesus with the tares. You know, Jesus talking about the tares among the wheat. And, and the disciples are asking, you know, do you want us to go and gather them up? And Jesus says, no, he's going to allow the tares to be within us until the end. And the only thing I can think of, this is just my opinion, is that we have to be grounded in scripture and we have to encourage each other biblically we have to be in other words there's a purpose god does everything for a purpose and he doesn't always tell us <laughs> but my guess would be that we have to be uh, dedicated 
you know, to the truth of, of the gospel and to the truth of what the Bible teaches us and be on guard. And, and that's, that's a good motivation for us, you know, to stay in God's word. Right. And I would also say this, the one another's in the Bible are important. There's a Greek word, al, al, al loose, I think, one another. Uh, we, <clears throat> the one another's are important. And we need each other. And someone will come along with a pet doctrine or whatever. We need to just think and see what's the best reading and and look at it and not get sidetracked. Every once in a while, someone will come and visit. Say, oh, I'm interested in your church. I want to meet with you. I heard you preach. I'm interested. So I'll go have coffee with a guy. And pretty soon I start getting email after email with links to conspiracy theory websites. And know this. Well, you didn't know this, did you? You didn't know this, did you? You didn't know this, did you? Here, you need to listen to this sermon. And pretty soon, he wasn't looking for a church. He's looking to disciple me into his eccentric, I think it was King James only or something like that usually. It's something. I know something you don't know, and you better learn from me. And when I say, no, I'm not interested I'm going to use the, the Greek, and then they come back at you. Wait a second. Are you using Texas Receptus? And so when they're done with you, the only option, if you just analyze it, is become the disciple of that guy. And if you're not the disciple of that guy, he won't have fellowship with you. So I know I've spotted that. It's happened four or five times. I say, no, I am not doing King James only. I'm not allowing you to tell me what Greek text I can use. And I'm going to teach the word of God. If you don't like it, I understand. That's your problem. Go. Well, I'll be discipled by some eccentric guy. And you know what happens to people like this? Some I've known over, off and on over 30 years. 30 years later, they're still in no church with no fellowship because they're right and everybody else is wrong. And it's not going to change. It just does not change. They'll always be right and everybody else will be wrong. And they just won't go to church because nobody's good enough for them. So when you see that in the front end, stay out. I won't listen to it. See, the, the truth is accessible. Uh, wisdom from above. What is the St. James, the wisdom from above? It, oh, Luann. Hold on here. Are you on? I am now. Yes, you are. <laughs> um, this one just came up for me this week, and I thought it was really interesting because a lot of the error that ends up being promoted is because we add to Scripture that what is not there. And we want to build a whole doctrine and a whole scenario and picture. And for me, it was the story of Samson. And many years ago, I had heard the story of how Samson was indulged by his parents because they waited for him um, as a child, you know, because they couldn't have children for so long. And so when he wanted to go after the Philistine woman, um, the parents didn't want him to. Can't you find one here in your own, you know, among your own family? And so anyway, people would say, well, Samson, you know, he was so spoiled that his parents indulged him. But when you really read what scripture says, and this is Judges 14, um, Uh, verse 4. But, you know, he says, you know, go get her for me to his parents. And then verse 4 said, now his father and mother did not realize this was the Lord's doing because he was looking for an opportunity to stir up trouble with the Philistines. (laughs) And we do not understand providence. And sometimes we like to think that we understand what's going on behind the scenes and we build these whole new doctrines that are not in Scripture. Well, good, good point. Jessica, did we talk about that in one of our, about uh, Job? Yes. Yeah, see, the reader, readers of Job know what's going on when you read Job, because we have behind the scene on the front first chapter. But people preaching from Job act like Job's comforters. Job's comforters have plenty of company. They know that something's wrong in your life that's unpleasant. You must be under a curse. 
or you must be a worse sinner than other Christians or whatever. And go back and read it. You know, the only reason we know is because we're seen behind the scene. We don't know what's going on in the heavenly council unless it's revealed. And so you're right. We, we're part of providence. Providence contains good and evil. We don't know God's future providential will other than what's prophesied directly in Scripture. The people who claim to know that I've heard in the last 50 years have been wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong again and again and again to the point the thing that really stands out, here's what stands out. The reason prophets who predict the future have to be 100% accurate uh, 1 Corinthians no, excuse me, Deuteronomy 18, right? Deuteronomy 18 is that Otherwise, it's worthless. Let me give you an illustration. Somebody predicts, one of them I wrote an article about, the, the stock market and everything's going to collapse in October 2015. Because God is angry at America for not keeping a law that Israel never kept. That is, don't farm every seven years. So God's going to curse America. So I wrote an article in June of that year rebuking the guy. Well, he's wrong. It doesn't happen. Well, he's wrong anyhow because we're not under that law. And then America is not Israel. And America doesn't have a covenant with God because we can't obligate God to a covenant he didn't agree to. Wrong, wrong, wrong. It doesn't happen. The guy sends out another news- newsletter predicting the next thing. They just keep doing it. Here's why that is always wrong and it has to be wrong. If you get a pass and you're allowed to be wrong, there's no downside to being a prophet. Okay? You can prophesy gold is going to go to thousands of dollars an ounce, or you can prophesy the price of gold is going to collapse. Whatever it is, if it's wrong, you ignore it. But one time you might be right, and then you can pray that one. I said this, here's what happened. So you claim the, the ones that work to prove you're a prophet, and you don't allow the ones that don't to disprove you're a prophet. Therefore, there's no downside. If you don't own the negative and get out of the profit business, you're false. Is that, is that a good application? That would uh, slow down the process. <laughs> I'm not advocating that. We're not under the... But the point is, it doesn't cost anything to make a prediction if you never get rebuked for being wrong. Well, then they'd pull this one. Well, it might happen, but it might be 150 years from now. That does me a lot of good. All right. <laughs> so the wolves have so many... They morph... But here's what will always keep us in good stead. Preach the gospel, teach the truth, provide the means of grace that God's given for every Christian. Be, allow yourself to be corrected when somebody else has a better reading and listen to others that have, as we're together studying the scriptures and um, Take care of people that have nothing to offer you. Take care of everybody, but don't discriminate based on uh, appearance or perceived benefit to yourself. And care for the flock and let God decide in eternity who did the better job. Because we don't know. First Corinthians 4 or 5. And so that's why at the end, Paul commends him to the Lord in the word of his grace. And a lack of care for God's precious flock is inexcusable. It's inexcusable. It's, it's heartbreaking. And I've seen it. And uh, may God preserve us from that. We've got to really, truly care for one another. The world does hate us. We are not of this world. The world will never want us. They hate us. Why? because we are under a different kingdom, kingdom of light rather than darkness. So we got to get that right now. Verse 30. 
uh, and from among your own selves. So that's the external wolves. Now from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. That's sort of like what I just mentioned. If the only source for your doctrine is some guy who came up with it, and you can search the scripture forever and not find it, you got a problem. It should be clear enough that someone reading the scripture can see it. So among your own selves. So Paul later wrote to Timothy, who was in Ephesus. So Ephesus is a key place. It also shows up in, in the Revelation about false teaching in the church. And so if you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy, let's start with 1, 3 through 7. 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 7. As I urge you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Now, Eric, feel free to, you taught through Timothy lately, and I, I did some study on this, I taught through it some years ago, but um, notice he says, instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Strange doctrines. So the faith once for all handed down to the faith to the saints is not morphing. And when somebody publishes, yes, uh, Paul. I just want, I guess I'm coming through. Um, our beloved Eric Dauma has uh, often used the uh, example on good works about an automobile which is running and the exhaust is the good works. You recall that, Eric? Yes. Okay. Uh, in the, say, oh, I don't care what time you say, 1400s when the automobile was not invented, that doctrine would not, that, that wouldn't have flown. We wouldn't have known what he was talking about. And so when a person says strange doctrines, could you define that just a little bit more? Because there may be, there are people who are a lot smarter than I am, believe it or not. But uh, they're smarter than I am. They use examples I don't know. And uh, I'm, so I kind of want to listen to them. But can you define strange doctrines a um, little bit better? Do you have your Greek with you, Eric, or maybe you can you have it memorized? I think I recall. Um, do you know the term for opposite sex marriage? You're heterosexual. I think it's. Hetero I thought it was heteros, right? Yeah, heterodidaskalos. So didaskalos is teaching. Hetero would mean another teaching. Okay, does that make sense? And so it would be anything that deviates from what the apostles had revealed, and in particular, in the context at Ephesus. You see this in 2 Timothy 2 where you have Hymenaeus and Philetus. They're teaching that the resurrection had already occurred. And again, I think what they're doing is they're saying it had to be a spiritual resurrection because someone would point, hey, you know, Aunt Gertrude is still in the grave, right? Um, so obviously it's not physical, but they were doing it because they wanted to try to get people away from the physical being important. It doesn't matter what you do in your body. The distinctions between what we do Sexually, does they, they don't matter. And I think the men were doing it so they could live immoral lifestyles, these false teachers like Hymenaeus and Philetus, because it was tied to sexual immorality. So that's what they were doing. So they were teaching another doctrine about the resurrection. Ironically, I'll be talking about that in my eschatology class because the amillennialist says that the resurrection has already occurred as well. They believe that the resurrection happens during the church age, at least the first one, into the intermediate state. Well, that's exactly what him and Aeus and Philetus were saying, is that the resurrection had already occurred. So my claim is that we ought to follow the apostles and say, no, the resurrection is something that's going to be a bodily one. And if it's not a bodily resurrection, well, then it's not a resurrection. And so that would be in, uh, just an example of the other doctrine, heterodidaskalos, that they were teaching. And therefore, yeah. Would, would strange doctrine be the same as doctrine of demons? Uh, well, the doctrine of demons is probably a genitive of source. 
of, in other words, the demons are the source of the doctrine, that would be, they would probably qualify as heterodidoscaline, but here it's speaking of anything that would be heteros in, uh, compared to the faith once we're all hand down to the saints taught by scripture alone. But wouldn't strange doctrines, wouldn't the impetus behind that, wouldn't it be the evil one? Well, the evil one's the liar and the father of the lie. So that's true. But it, I don't know that doctors of demons in this passage here are exactly synonymous. Um, it could be a strange doctrine can come from the imagination of a person. Uh, not that Satan isn't behind that, but we, if it's false, we know that it's harmful, whatever its source, yes. So looking at this First Timothy that you just read, uh, 1.4, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. And then, uh, Pastor Eric, you were just in Second Timothy 2. A little before there, it says, um, remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit to the ruin of the hearers. Well, how often do we see absolute heresy come out of somebody taking one word and saying, but you don't know what it really means? And we've spent a lot of, I think we're at like 35 episodes or something now of Dutch Sheets, and he has about three Hebrew words that he's built his entire theology on. So he takes one word and one possible meaning. Bob calls it the range of meaning fallacy. Takes one possible meaning and then builds his entire theology on the Holy Spirit hovering in Genesis 1. And to him, so he takes that one word that's hover and makes it about us and our prayers giving birth to reality. So yeah, it, we, that comes up. You, you can just watch how they handle words. And that doesn't mean we don't ever look at the Greek and find out what it could mean. Yeah. But if they're building their entire theology on one word, and that's supposed to shift how you read the entire Bible, that's a red flag. Or, yeah, the, the, end, the end result, 35 episodes on that. They're not complaining yet. So. Oh, brother. Well, the point is, it's really just a primer on what's been taught by many teachers for the last 50 years. It's basically, we're in charge of reality. If you don't get the outcome you want, you didn't do it right. Yeah, how about that word paga? Yeah. You have to build a paga. That's what Dutch she's saying. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, fr frankly, you could just go back to Rome. But building a paga would be saying these things and doing these things so nothing can get you. Otherwise, you might be cursed. And so you have to, we, we have to get a revelation from God about what Satan's trying to do specifically and then create this system where Satan doesn't get his chance. And then they have stories to prove that it worked. And it's just, it's so man-centered. Yes, Rich. Back in college, we used to say, we're going to go and hear uh, Pastor Pillow or Pastor Sheets, meaning we're going to just sleep in and not even go to church. Maybe these people should just sleep in and not even listen to the dude and just, you know, enjoy their slumber. <laughs> All right, Pastor Pillow. <laughs> I never thought of that. Play on words. Hey, Bob. Yes. On your, um, I was going to just mention on your range of meaning fallacy, a good example of that is what Bob was pointing out is what a teacher will do, a false teacher, is they'll take a term and they'll take the most obscure, there's a range of meaning for every term, and they'll take the most obscure one that fits their pet peeve, their pet doctrine, and they'll read it into every context. So let me just give you an example. Let's say you use the term run. You say, I ran out of Coke. So I ran to the store, and I ran into Billy, who's head of the PTA or whatever. Well, there I've used run three different ways. And so that just illustrates how the term has to be defined by the immediate context. What Bob says is regarding Dutch sheets, I love the way you say this. He says he's wrong 100% of the time. He's always taking the term 
and forcing it into the context that he's trying to abuse it in, and he's making it mean the same thing every time. Well, that's not valid. We don't use language the same way. Yeah. So they do it every time. And would you say he's, a, he's wrong about 100% well, of the we time? Can't, we, we, have, we may find one where he gets it right. Oh, wow. But we haven't yet. <laughs> uh, listen, here's a simple, let's make it real simple. Really simple. Who determines the meaning? The Holy Spirit-inspired writer of Scripture or the reader? Yes. And, and who gets the glory, man or God? Yeah, man every time. I do, I do a time. lot of word studies, um, and you always look for what brings God glory, not yourself. Well, um, that's a good point. So here's, dear saints, number one, the Holy Spirit-inspired author's meaning is God's meaning. The range of meaning fallacy isn't that there is a range of meaning, but that we don't care what the author meant here. We care what it could mean. And then uh, I, another turn of the phrase that came up in one of these that popped out of my mouth was, uh, it's a th contrived theology looking for a proof text. Okay, so you start with, I want to be in charge and get the outcome. So now let's figure out a way to get that from the scripture we're rather than searching the scripture to see what God said, we're trying to put ourselves in charge of the outcome. Now that's sophisticated unbelief, and here's why. That's why that's a wolf. Now, sophisticated unbelief is this. If I come to God by his grace on his terms and trust Christ for salvation, I'll get to Ron next. If I do that and I search the scriptures, Life still has problems. There are still bad outcomes so as far as we're concerned because we don't know the, the final story. Joseph, for example, in Genesis 50, verse 20, at the end said, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. But when you're in the middle of it, it's hard to sort that out. So faith believes that God is going to get us where he said he'd get us to glory by many different means, including carrying us along by, the, by his grace. The unbelief is God won't do that unless you help him, which, they, which is what they say. You've got to gain a revelation from the realm of the spirits. They call it the Holy Spirit. I call it the realm of the spirits because it's extra biblical revelation. And then use the revelation you got and build a paga, that's a Hebrew word, to, uh, which is a wall of protection. Is that how he uses that? I think that's it. In the context of creating a meeting. Oh, you got to have a meeting. Yeah. I, I can't remember. Oh, so many heresies, I can't remember them all. <laughs> but the simple thing is to trust God. Yeah. Okay, okay, uh, Ron, go ahead. Is it green? Here. There it is. Yep. So... I've been a mechanic. I've worked on junk my whole life, all kinds of different things, airplanes, cars, motorcycles, machinery. Most of the time you have a manual, and it's, it's, it's a good manual. Some are excellent. However, there was an engineer that wrote that manual or that had great input into that manual. And when you work on something that has a very detailed procedure, you better follow what they say. You cannot say, ah, uh, well, the writer of this, uh, they, had a, they had a bad idea. I'm going to do it my way. You just wreck something. And I've wrecked a few things. More when I was younger. But the author determines what you're going to do with that text. Yeah, the author has a meaning. And it's very simple when yeah. it comes to something like a, a, an auto man manual. Why can't it be the same with the word? Yeah, amen. Uh, the... For example, in this series we did, it's, I wrote an article called Carried by the Comforter. And it takes the word, um, the Holy Spirit leads us. And the word lead is a go, which means to bring or carry. And the meaning that the other author was interested in was lead means give secret spiritual information that you gain through some means. And then once you gain your secret information, using it 
to do a process that'll get you to the end you're looking for. And God wants to bring us to glory, but he needs our help. And they, they say that. Now, what Paul meant is patently clear, uh, to your point, Ron, if you read Romans 8 from about verse 18 on to the end, he's not making exceptions for the saints. We are going to get to glory. Nothing will separate us from the love of God. Yeah, we will be, the redeemed will be glorified. We will be preserved. We will be carried by the comforter, the paraclete, parkletos, the Holy Spirit. And they would say, well, we know you may not get the right outcome. It may not work out right. But that's not what Paul's trying to say. Is Paul trying to say, no, if you don't get a special revelation, there's a monkey wrench going into it. It won't work for you. No. But then there's stories to back up all that. So, good point. Well, I remember, uh, Eric, when you, you were talking about the bold pilot and the old pilot. I haven't forgot that one. Yeah, when we're young, we tend to be the bold, right? Let's tear into that. It's a miracle we preserve long enough to stay alive to adulthood. Did you see that video? The kid was going 120 miles an hour with his car, flew off the road. Did, you, did anybody else see that? I saw it. Yeah. There's a police officer as the guy pulled over. Here comes a car with a 17-year-old driver. Loses. You don't have to lose much traction at 120 to lose it. Flies off the road, cross median, heading right toward the officer in the car. Hits the car. The officer was right in one certain little spot. The car flies, and he was saved. He, if he was anywhere besides that one spot where he was, he would have died. And um, the kid was 17, going 120. Well, when you're 72, you know not to go 120. <laughs> Hopefully before that. <laughs> if you do that too often, you won't get to 72. <laughs> All right. So... The first lesson, in, Eric's been talking about wisdom, learn the wisdom when you can. Because uh, the results of not having it can be fatal. So when we're restricting what teachings are allowed, which isn't restrictive, we get the whole counsel of God, which should take us our whole lives to study. This is what God is requiring of elders to keep people safe. And every once in a while, from your own self, someone will rise and speak perverse things. And we can't let it, we've got to stand firm and not allow it to draw people away. Um, so as it says here, pay attention to Ms. Genealogies. Let's, you know, in genealogies, there's different ways that comes up. The Mormon church, which is not really a church, but you're looking for genealogies and who descended from whom and so on. Here is the easy way to understand it. There is a race that's really bad. It's called the Adamic race. Okay. And the simple thing is all those descended from Adam and Eve are spiritually dead. Those who are born of God by turning to Christ through the gospel, as we saw in John 3, are now children of the king. And they're alive. The genealogy isn't going to tell you that you have favorable status. The only favorable status is to be in Christ. Does that make sense? I'm not saying you can't learn your genealogy for the curiosity of the family, but that's not going to give you better status before God. Does that make sense? Good. Uh, speculations rather than the administration of God, which is by faith. Speculation is not helpful in most cases if it's about anything that's important regarding to the faith once for all handed down to the, to the saints. Oh, man, the speculations through the centuries of church history 
Endless speculations. Endless speculations. Never quits. The gospel that's revealed is not speculation, it's re revelation. And it's not going to change. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 1 Timothy 1.5. Is there some reason we wouldn't want love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith? Is that going to harm someone? No. Is that going to benefit the body of Christ? Yes. How are we going to get love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith? Only by the grace of God through the means he's ordained. We believe his promises. We study his word. We pray to God. We pray for one another. We care for one another. And we patiently instruct and realize that that goal of the instruction will yield that sort of fruit. Every elder and teacher needs to know this. If you patiently teach, do the study on the front end. Don't preach something until you've done the study to make sure you understand the issues. And if there's something you still don't know, it's not a sin to say, I still don't know. Uh, what I still don't know isn't binding on anybody. But here's what it does say. And know this, anybody that might hear this, God will use that to change people. And the way a congregation ends up with pure hearts, good conscience, and sincere faith is through instruction that's based, grounded in Scripture alone. And it's accurate and it's accessible, A-C-C-E-S-S, and patiently taught. And when someone comes along and says, you've got to do something, you've got to do it now. Okay, hold on. We've got to change everything, we've got to do it now. Hold on. Patient instruction that's looking for the result of people's hearts being pure, with a good conscience and sincere faith. Verse 6, for some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion. Wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. So confident assertions based on speculation are not going to put anybody solidly on the rock, which is crazy. Oh, you're going to preach on that. Yes, that's right. that's right. Eric's preaching on building on the rock. I love that section. You build on the rock, you build on sand. Speculations are sand. The faith once for all hand down to the saints is the rock. And you are... I'm thinking about, um, is there a reason to regret later that at some previous point you taught the word of God accurately? No. No, I don't. That's why we started in 1983 after every move of God came through town and then failed. Another one came through town and then failed. Another one came through town. Left people confused, hurting. Some left the faith. Some had trouble recovering. Instability was everywhere. And the only thing we could think of to do was to teach the Bible because it doesn't change. Amen. I don't regret that. Why would you regret teaching the Bible? Unless you did it wrongly. And the good thing about that is if your claim is I'm teaching the Bible and you get it wrong, but you may all prophesy one by one the other, the two or three, and let the others judge. You can be corrected. So if I get a better reading and I was wrong, somebody points it out, then we can correct it. But if I say, thus saith the Lord, yea, this shall happen, how do you correct that? Because now God just lied. Yes, uh, Brother Brian. I've heard you and Eric both over time 
make the comment that as time goes on, you understand a certain portion of the Bible better than you did. So right. not that it was wrong, but it's more clear. Well, sometimes it can be just flat out wrong, too. Remember the sermon in my case? Well, and sometimes it's better to say you don't know. If you were here when I preached that one from uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 7, last month, uh, church history had it wrong almost entirely. Where Paul, there's a saying, now concerning the letter you wrote, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And now, six scholarly commentaries that I have, Fee was the first one that helped me understand it back in the 80s, is that that's their slogan. The whole monastic system of Roman Catholicism, of celibate priests, of claiming that married people are lesser Christians. And one thing, going all the way back to Augustine and others, was based on taking that as Paul's teaching rather than their slogan, which he's cracking. Now, can you see why that would be different? Yes. If they have a slogan and Paul's correcting it, then that's total opposite meaning than if that's what Paul's teaching. So people became nuns, priests, take oaths, go off into convents trying to be higher order Christians by forbidding marriage. All based on a misunderstanding of one text where you get it opposite. So does it matter how hard we study? Yes. Now, there have been people, we were accused when we started teaching verse by verse through the Bible in the 80s that we quenched the Holy Spirit. And uh, that was not just lightly said. They seriously believed we quenched the Spirit, put a death pail over the whole church, and many people left, said, you, you can't do this. You're quenching the Spirit. Well, by teaching the Bible verse by verse and correcting error when it arises, I ended up being corrected myself. Dear ones, the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible. I promise you, the Holy Spirit is never grieved by his Bible being taught accurately. Amen. Okay, That claim is so patently false. But what they were saying is, because we were having these exciting meetings and all these things were happening, people were flocking and good people falling on the floor and all this glorious stuff. And somebody comes along and says, there might be something wrong with this. It made the meeting a little dampered. <laughs> That's really what was going on. But we'll just keep teaching the word of God because look at patiently. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith. Dear one, love from a pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith will keep you even if you didn't fall on the floor. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying. <laughs> or if the preacher hadn't visited heaven three times. Again, the, the, I'm not making this up. The laughing revival... Somebody went to and they never heard Christ preached once, but they laughed and laughed. Um, you can laugh with Roland and Martin that's laughing. I must be old. Okay, I remember that. Old. So, dear ones, be grounded in a faith, understand the author's meaning, be patient, and the, the uh, false teaching comes in every kind of form. The truth comes in one form, which is the person and work of Christ biblical truth and righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's how we want to live. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness. Thank you for Eric as he's going to preach to us from Matthew about the uh, building on the rock. Give him wisdom to share with us so that we can hear it. May we listen to your word and put it into practice and 
May, for, may it be that for every last one of us, that we'd have a, cl a clean conscience, sincere love, and care for one another as we grow in you. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.